0: Uh, Isaiah 59. Now, um, today we're going to deal with the matter of injustice in Israel. Last week in chapter 57, two weeks ago, we saw God condemning paganism among his people. That included the use of sorcery, shortcuts to kind of grease the skids of life, to try to bring the spirit realm into your life for your own convenience or prosperity. In chapter 58, we dealt with false fasting. This is a people that were the people of God, Israel, and they wanted God, they wanted his truth, they wanted his justice for them, but they weren't doing justice for others and their fasting uh, was in, in the same context as them abusing their, their workers and, and, and uh, striking people even. Today we see that God is not working in their midst because of the sin of injustice, injustice among Israelites. Injustice would be sins that involve denying other people the right to life, the right to property. Abusing them, usually through the government and the courts. That, that's just the way it's been throughout antiquities. Human government is a great thing. It's a gift from God. Romans 13 makes it clear that uh, you and I probably went to sleep last night without fearing for our lives because we have a human government that makes it such that when we go to bed, we really don't have like a, you know, a 10 or 20% chance that somebody's going to break into our house and kill us. Uh, I've been in environments where that's not the, not, not the case, at least not as much where when, when I'd go to bed with people, they'd pray for God to give safety at night, and the morning when we'd meet for breakfast, they praise God for giving them safety through the night that had just ended. And that's a real request, it's a real problem in certain environments. So human government can be very good in that sense, but throughout the 20th century, if you were to look at the genocides and the, the democide of the 20th century, uh, most of it, well over 90% of it, was done through human government. It was legal. Some government system was killing people systematically. Uh, all the way back to Armenian genocide of 1915, uh, where somewhere between 600,000 and, 600, and 1.2 million uh, Armenian Christians died as the uh, Turkish Muslims. Today it's not the Ottoman Empire, it's Turkey, and, and they were seeking to establish a Turkish Muslim empire, and it worked. Uh, democide, there's a guy by the name of Rummel who uh, studied 8,000 reports of uh, democide. Democide is killing unarmed or disarmed persons by the government. And, and uh, he calculated 262 million victims in the 20th century. Now, today, there's some 12 to 20 democides going on. Um, most of them government-sponsored, but not all. Um, and, and, and uh, not even 90% today are government-sponsored. It would probably be more like 60 or 70%. Some government is behind it. And you might think, oh, we're in the United States of America. We're part of Western society. We're on the right side of history. We're beyond all of that. And I'd say that that's naivete. That's, that's misunderstanding uh, human nature and, and what's at the core of this. It, it's, it's, not, it, it's not hungry people scrapping for resources. It's some ego uh, seeking power and control, and vengeance, and the exercise of anger. There's also some interesting, interesting demographical trends that are gonna be happening in, happening in the coming years with, with technology, and, and of course, you know, uh, one of my, uh, one of my uh, uh, favorite people to listen to would be uh, Elon Musk, who's building robots, and, and he likes to say, hey, just think about this. We have robots building robots who will do things that humans don't wanna do, that are too dangerous to do, that are too repetitive. And eventually, decades down the road, matter of decades, we're looking at unlimited productivity. What is even going to be the meaning of an economy when there is unlimited productivity, unlimited wealth? Well, that sounds wonderful, but who's going to own that wealth? Probably the investor class. Are they just going to share with everybody? Maybe, um, maybe not. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, activity with the futurists, and some of these have become nothing more than meme seekers. They sometimes say shocking things, I think, to get clicks, and yet they have a basis for what they're saying, and they are trying to anticipate where the world is going. One of these here, this guy Yuval, um, he, uh, he, he uh, advises uh, Klaus Schwab at the WEF, and and again, he's a public intellectual. That's his job. He works for uh, the University of Israel, and, and I think he sometimes says things for clicks, but... Uh, he talks about this coming productivity, and he's like, "What are you going to do with the surplus people, the useless people?" And and you know he uses these shocking terms. I think again, clickbait perhaps. But but his point is, in the past, uh, industrial revolution, the people had power because you were building machines and products at at new scale. And who did you need to run machines and products? You needed people. What do you do when you're building people? Basically, you're building machines with artificial intelligence that are thousand times smarter than your average human being, faster, eyes on all sides, always alert, never sleepy, never lazy. Uh, you're, you're displacing uh, billions of people. And, and so Yuval believes that, that one, one solution that he proposes, he says it's already happening, is uh, you, you give alternative minimum income and people will occupy themselves with drugs and video games. And, and, uh, and, and he said it's already happening. So in his view, that that's one possible solution. I will say this, that if there is an elite class and they're seeing human beings as useless, as surplus, that would be one of the kindest ways of dealing with this surplus that we have seen throughout history. And it's just fascinating, all these things converging. Uh, I, and uh, just, just the, uh, I, I've mentioned uh, in a few books that I've been reading how, how intelligent people are talking about if you can live 10 more years, we're going to have such technology in 10 years that we might be able to stop aging. And 10 years after that, we might be able to reverse aging. And intelligent people are truly believing that in this body, they're going to live long enough to live forever. Now, we know theologically, after the flood, God set a timer there at 120 years. They're going to run into a roadblock at 120 years. But even if they achieve that, it'd be an amazing thing. Very amazing. Um, Of course, this kind of Technology will be available to whom? (laughs) The wealthy. Uh, The other thing that they are looking for is a convergence of the human being and and, and technology. This is called transhumanism, uh, where we go beyond. It's the next evolution of humanity, where humanity interacts with technology at the pace of technology. See, today, you can only take in about, you know, what, 400 megabytes a minute through reading. You can do better through video watching. But but you're limited by your eyes, your ears, as to what you can bring into the brain, but they're looking for ways to bring data into your brain at the rate that a computer receives data. And, And again, who is this technology going to be available to a class of people? So I bring it all back to the useless humans. The kindest response would be to give them a portion of the windfall and let them occupy themselves however they may. I I could tell you theologically, the Bible has always upheld work as something very honorable, something very good. In fact, it's sanctifying. It keeps us occupied. Idle hands, idle minds, devil's playground. Now, as you look at this, you might think, well, the answer is I need to accumulate money and be part of that investor class. I need to accumulate the skill set that robots can't replace. And you might think the answer to that is to beat the world at their own game. I would say that being occupied is always better than being idle. And so that's not an all-bad strategy, but that's also missing a very, very key point. Uh, There's going to be such a spiritual wasteland in this nation decades from now if there is such abundance and such idle time among humanity. Probably the best thing you could do is study theology, because we are going to have a morally bankrupt and hungry world all around us. And if you truly do have time to, uh, to occupy yourself, you can occupy yourself with the gospel. In any case, I mention all of that to say this. What's shocking in today's text is it's talking about injustice. It's talking about destroying people's lives, killing people. And it's the people of God. It's Israel. Israel. And so you might think, we the United States. Such things could never happen here. And, and yet Israel were still theists. They were still at some level looking forward to God somehow answering their prayers even though they were unjust. The United States is headed towards evolutionary atheism. What moral underpinnings do they have to not take a more convenient approach to dealing with surplus humanity? So I think we need to read the text and, and take it seriously as something that could be extant here in the United States even now uh, in seed form. We're in Isaiah 59. Uh, when we get to there's an interesting transition when we get to verse number nine. The uh, prophet Isaiah goes to the first person plural, and I think that's beautiful leadership. When and, and also reality, we are shaped by our culture. Is the United States a materialistic culture? Yeah. Are you and I struggling with materialism? Oh, yeah. Right? So uh, we, we, we need to not say, yeah, they. It's us. And I, and, and I think the prophet shows excellent leadership there in verses 9 through 15. And then in verse middle of verse 15 is really a new section in the chapter where God sees it and he suits up and goes into action. So let's uh, read the chapter here. Isaiah 59 verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or is he ear dull that it cannot hear? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters into suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. Deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight, and among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself pray. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. For they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a righteous God, that you are a just God. We thank you that you hate injustice. A little bit of a problem for us because, God, we are unjust people at many times in many ways. Father, this springs out of self-centeredness. Sometimes we call it convenience. Sometimes we call it necessary sins for coping in the workplace or the world. And Father, in the name of self and convenience, We are unjust to others. I pray that you would cleanse us of this. I pray, God, that we would recognize this and seek to obey you. Uh, Father, I also pray that you would help us not to despair at the human condition. Your word has been clear. Mankind has been defiled since the Garden of Eden, the first generation brother killing brother. Uh, Father, uh, sin is truly awful. And so we would say, let you be true in every man a liar, that the curse of sin that is upon us and around us is just. And, Father, that uh, it hurts and it should. But, God, I pray that you would help us to cleanse ourselves from the sins that would harm those around us. Help us not to harm our neighbor. Help us to love our neighbor. And, Father, help us to take hope in this, that you have a Redeemer in Zion, that you are cleaning this up yourself and you will be vindicated. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. As we begin here in this study, uh, when God's people abandon honesty for greedy schemes, God withdraws from them. This should be no surprise to anyone who knows their Bible. God hates pride. God hates sinfulness. We see here in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or is ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, here's the problem, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, if you go back to the previous chapter, verse number two, you'll see their complaint. We were fasting, and you didn't see it. It says in verse number two, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask of me righteous judgments for their own convenience. But verse 3, they delight to on you. Uh, verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God has the answer. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Uh, so, so we see there are people that are seeking God, but they have some fundamental heart problems that are, that are putting a, a, a barrier between, in the relationship between themselves and God Almighty. In verse 3, it continues to describe them. Uh, It says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingertips with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. When it says your hands are defiled with blood, I don't take that to be mere metaphor. I I, I take this, as we read on, I take this to be uh, literally they were destroying people's lives in a predatory fashion and and using court systems and, and bearing false witness in courts in order to prey upon others. Verse 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Uh, We've seen that throughout history, that mankind uses the, the legal system for unjust means. They have legal entrapment. They draw people into situations. They have have uneven application of the laws depending on favored groups or less favored groups. They have process laws whereby you could be accused of something you're totally innocent of but in the process of investigating you, you make some missteps and you go to jail not for what you did but for what you did while you're being investigated for what you didn't do. That's just the way you can use the legal system. As as some have said in business that that, that the, the process is the punishment. Uh, if you get taken to federal court by a competitor for some patent problem, it's a seven-figure bill even when you win. It's a seven-figure bill from your lawyer to go through it. And, and it's just a means of uh, if you can't beat them in the marketplace, you beat them in the courts. So it was here. No one enters a suit justly. No one goes to law honestly in verse 4. And then you have these metaphors in verse 5. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web he who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, an egg that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Now, I take it not all snakes lay eggs, but many do. Um, I also take it that in science, there I don't believe there's any known eggs that are poisonous to eat, so I don't totally understand the metaphor. He who eats their eggs dies. I don't think that comes from life. Um, uh, Wayne can correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong in that. But um, the, um, the thing that uh, perhaps... The eating the egg and dying is from that next phrase, from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Perhaps you bite into an egg with a viper in it. And um, a baby viper, and I do understand baby vipers can carry poison, um, deadly poison even as, at, at their hatching. So whatever we've got here, we've just got a picture of people who are snakes. They give birth to, they give birth to, 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 to snakes. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. I don't think that's metaphor. Now, verses 7 and 8, you'll recognize from Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. Verse 7 and 8 says, Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. And I think that'd be treads on the roads that they made. The the roads they make are tough roads. That is so like Satan. He promises, oh, go my road. It's a tough road, people. It is a tough road. Go to Romans 3 if you have your Bibles with you or um, if you're uh, in an app that you can do that quickly. Go to Romans chapter 3, where verses 15 through 17 quote today's text. And just look at how in verse number 9 it it, it sets the table as to who Paul is using this text. I mean, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, uh, who he says it's addressing. Paul says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and then there are several passages, uh, uh, multiple passages here being quoted, but none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. That's talking about the natural man. If you, before you were saved, were seeking God, the Spirit of God was moving in you. It was God working in you gloriously. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Here's our quote. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of mankind. All are sinners. Let me tell you something today. If you came through this door and you're wondering, you know, what is it that makes Christians Christians? It's not that anybody here is is a Christian because they were so good. What we fundamentally recognize is that we have all fallen under sin. That we cannot stand in God's judgment. That God's standard of justice is perfection. And we have lost that. We have sacrificed that. There is one perfect man to walk the earth. The man Christ Jesus. And his righteousness gets imputed to our account when we place our faith in him. So the Bible continues here after saying all have sinned in in Romans 3. And these are like life verses for me. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law condemns every one of us. That's its purpose. Look at verse number 20. For by works of the law, no human flesh will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. By reading the Torah, uh, the, the 417 or 517 laws of the Old Testament, you learn about the moral character of God, and you learn that your moral character does not measure up And so by the law comes this knowledge of sin. I've got a problem. I've got a sin problem. Romans 3 continues, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And I like to read that preposition, the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, here it is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that is a huge question for you today, is have you believed on Jesus Christ? You are a sinner. I am a sinner. None of us will enter God's presence and say, oh, holy, perfect God, it's so good to meet somebody as good as me now, finally. I mean, you know, you and I, dealing with all these people, well, it's been a long life, but I'm so glad we have each other now. That will not fly. You need a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the law. Why? Because we're all sinners. So I love this section that, 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 that we'll see here um, in Isaiah, where Isaiah identifies himself with the people of Israel because he too is a sinner. As we look at these verses and, and, and they describe these predatory people, I'm uh, back in Isaiah, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 59, talks about them being predators. They're like vipers, biting, poisoning, killing. It's just in their way. It's in our way when we're sinners. It's like Second Peter 2 says, uh, "Just listen to the, 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 the instinct that sinners have for sin. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Sinners love to drag you into their midst. It's just a matter of their nature. It's a matter of their instinct. Matthew 7, there is, there is a, a bit of a balance here that we need to live in life because there are people in this world who just devour others. It's their instinct. Do you avoid them as a Christian or do you plow in and witness to them? Do you plow in and try to convert them? And I think that's a matter of spiritual wisdom and prayer on a case-by-case business basis. There are times where you head right in to somebody who's wicked and you witness to them because you trust it's going to be effective. There are other times where you plow forward and you seek to witness to people because you trust God would have you to do so, and it does not end well. Isaiah, this prophet, by the way, was sawn in two by Hezekiah's son. I, I, you know, and then later, Hezekiah's son was humbled by God, imprisoned by the Assyrians, repented, and, and came to faith. And he will be in heaven with us. He is in heaven with Isaiah today, having had orders for Isaiah to be sawn in two. But I say that to say, you are free to give your life for the gospel if you feel so led. But then you have this confusing words by Jesus where he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before the pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So there is some spiritual wisdom. Are you being called to convert a sinner? Are you being called to give your life as a martyr? Or perhaps just suffer for the Lord? Uh, or is this situation where you're dealing with dogs and you need to exercise some spiritual wisdom? And again, God guide you on that. I don't have any hard and fast formulas. Uh, I think the Spirit uses the word in your heart and the situation to, to, to interpret those things. So Isaiah now in this next point, he confesses corporate guilt. He just joins Israel in, 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 in uh, confessing his guilt. Verse 9, Therefore justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. (laughs) We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. For we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. This is what issues from our heart. Lying words. And so here's the status of culture if you look at, uh, at, at verse 14, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. So truth in our culture, it's stumbled. Righteousness, not welcome. Righteousness is not allowed here. That's the status of Israeli culture at the time of this. Look at verse number 15. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. There are, enti- there are environments in which if you do not participate in unrighteousness, you become a target. And you need to embrace that because where is this passage going to go? Uh, this passage is going to go with God uh, exercising vindication in the end. Verse number twenty-one. Uh, my spirit, verse number 20, a Redeemer will come from, uh, to Zion, and those who turn from transgression. So, God, so the Redeemer is coming to those who repent of this stuff. But just understand that there are going to be times in your life where you're going to withhold your hand from unrighteousness. You're not going to participate in unrighteousness, and that's going to put a target on your back. So says the Word of God. In point three here, God promises, that those who turn from trans, uh, God promises those who turn from transgression that, that he will deliver justice, a redeemer, and his spirit to preserve you and also to preserve your offspring and to preserve your children's offspring. That's what we call a heritage. That's a gift of grace. That is an amazing promise from God. Look at the middle of verse number 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. That there was no justice. Now, when it says the Lord saw it, the word saw or see is a word of judgment. Like in in Genesis 1, God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was good. When God saw it, He was making a judgment that it was good. When He sees the wickedness of man, He's making a judgment. That means there's about to be action. Verse 16, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Uh, So basically, God is moving into action. And now if you like superhero movies uh, where they suit up, that's what's happening here in verse number 17, verse 16 and 17, or uh, verse 17. He, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his adversaries. To the coastlands he will render repayment. Who are the coastlands? That would be the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, when, When you're a coastal city, you were a trade city if you had any kind of a harbor, and you engage in trading. What was one of the most popular trade items? Slaves. We're talking about wicked harbor points, wicked people trading lives, And the coastlands, he's going to render repayment to them. Verse 19, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, from the uh, setting of the sun, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. God is going to take action. He's going to suit up, and there is going to be vengeance on evil. You want to be on the right side of evil (laughs) and righteousness when this happens. And here's a glorious manifold promise in verses 20 and 21. A Redeemer will come to Zion. A Redeemer. Our God is a redeeming God. He does not write you off. He does not write off mankind. Uh, He he seeks to redeem. And this this Redeemer comes to Zion. But notice that next phrase. To those who turn from transgressions. To those who turn. That, That word turn is the word repent. To those who repent from transgression, you remember when John the Baptist uh, hailed the coming of Jesus? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, in salvation, repentance is not a work you do that earns you salvation. It's a hard attitude. It's a context in which you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, there is no embracing of Jesus and embracing, uh, openly embracing sin at the same time. There is a heartfelt rejection of your wickedness. Uh, You know, when you understand sin, when you understand that you're a sinner, you understand the cost of sin. In this lifetime, the way sin destroys relationships and lives, you also understand how it destroys you in eternity, and you just repent. You turn from this evil, this injustice that we're seeing in this chapter, and then the promise continues. We have the Son because we have the Redeemer, but now we also have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. "'And as for me, this is my covenant with them,' says the Lord." My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I put in your mouth. Now, that's interesting because you have the Holy Spirit and you have the Word of God. And what is one of the main ministries that we see the Holy Spirit doing? It's called the Illuminating Work of the Holy Spirit. He causes Christians to understand the Word of God as they read it. Not perfectly. It's not, a, it's not some kind of supernatural uh, superpower that you have. But there's just a basic understanding that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. You have the Spirit. And God puts the spirit in you. He He puts his words in you. What's the result? It's a heritage. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with them. Verse 21 says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time and forevermore. In the context of parents repenting, in the context of parents allowing the Spirit to work in their lives for sin, in the context of parents having the Word of God on their lips, there is a ministry to offspring. There is a ministry to your children's offspring. That is a glorious prospect, is it not? So as we conclude today's passage, I do not know what wickedness the current generation of Satan's children are cooking up. It has to do with technology. It has to do with hyperabundance. It has to do with seeking immortality in this body and in this life. Staggering levels of economic differentiation as the world goes into what some call transhumanism, the next evolution of mankind, but only for the rich. What will they do with useless humans, surplus humans? Support them minimally or have more efficient ways? The answer is not for you to get into a race of intelligence and money with the world. You may think that being on top of the food chain is the answer, It is not. Christianity will always be at enmity with unrighteousness. It will always have a target on its back. Certainly you should engage in labor, in skills. Having skills and engaging in labor has always been a Christian virtue. It's your opportunity to glorify God. And do not exchange your occupation, your vocation. Do not exchange that for for mere money. And materialism, those of you at the clinic working, when you heal people, you image your God who heals. Those of you who work in creative jobs, creating things, programming things, you are imaging a God who created. Uh, You are reflecting, your. when you bring peace to the workplace, you are imaging your God who brought peace to this earth. So embrace skills, embrace your work, but not in trying to beat the world at their own game. Embrace it as a means of worship, a means of honoring your God in this lifetime. The ultimate answer is to turn from evil because there is a Redeemer who came to Zion 2,000 years ago. He is coming again. We need to allow the Spirit of God to preserve the Word of God in our lips, in our hearts. Let it work through us. Let it work through generations. And finally, Christians, be encouraged. You know how this ends. Our Redeemer is coming again to Zion. He will exercise vengeance on all of mankind's wickedness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who applies the word, gives us an understanding of the word, this illuminating work of the Spirit. God, I pray that you would cause each one of us to individually deal with our own sin this morning. God, you are not a tool we use to raise good children. Our children are yours. And Father, if they reject Jesus Christ, they would then deserve to perish in hell for all of eternity. Father, we seek to be right with you We seek to have your word cleansing us. We do pray, God, that you would help us to be fruitful in the lives of our children, our grandchildren, that you would gift us a heritage out of your mercy, which does not punish us for all of our sin, and out of your grace, which gives gifts to your children. But above all, God, make us right with you. Lord, we do pray for our culture. We live in exciting times. We are thankful for this. We thank you for human government. We have been given a good government, and we thank you for that. We just pray, Lord, that your will would be done in our hearts and that your will would be done in our culture. We pray that there would be many examples of righteousness, of your word cleansing cultures and, and creating examples of, of, of the spirits working in masses of people. But, Father, failing that, I pray that you'd give us faith and strength to endure. We thank you in Jesus' name.